This is the Public Radio Hour, produced in the studios of 89.3 WLRH. In the next hour, we'll connect communities across North Alabama with a massive new greenway called Singing River Trail. This is no longer an if project. This is now a when project. The Arts Underground is spotlighting Huntsville's comedy scene with a new series called Funny You Should Ask. We'll relive Brandon Imes' first time on stage. I was nervous. You know, my knees were shaking. My voice was quivery. And they were showing the Daytona 500. And while I'm on stage, Juan Pablo Montoya got into a fiery car crash. And while some stages face continued COVID struggles, people are making it work like the Princess Theater in downtown Decatur. We were able to keep our lights on and let people know we were around. We'll also learn about the Thriftique expansion of Friends of Rescue and have some springtime fun with Catherine Tucker Wyndham. This is the Public Radio Hour. Thanks for tuning in. Hi everyone, Brett Tannehill here. Thanks for joining us here on the Public Radio Hour. We're excited to be back with another homemade episode. In the next hour, we'll check on the health of live music at the Princess Theater, connect the dots on Singing River Trail, Thriftyk for Animal Rescue with Friends of Rescue, and close things out with some springtime poetry fun with master storyteller Catherine Tucker Wyndham. But first, you've no doubt heard us sing the well-deserved praises of our amazing music scene. Huntsville's also lucky to have a healthy local comedy scene. And that's something else we're covering here, right here on 89.3 Huntsville. The Arts Underground, hosted by Katie Ganaway, Saturday afternoons at 2, has launched a brand new segment called Funny You Should Ask to help us meet Tennessee Valley comedians. Brandon Imes was the first guest on Funny You Should Ask. His quick-witted performances date back to 2012 and the homegrown comedy showcase. But he started out just a nervous guy at an open mic night. Here's Katie and Brandon from The Arts Underground. Welcome to a new segment we're calling Funny You Should Ask here on Arts Underground. And we're kicking it off with my friend and local comedian, Brandon Imes. Hey, Brandon. Hey. Hey. So you have an impressive memory, and I want to hear what your first memory of your introduction to comedy is. First memory of my introduction to comedy? uh, That goes pretty far back. I remember... Watching stand-up with, like, my mom and my grandma, the earliest thing I can remember watching is Bill Cosby himself. Mm. Magical special, but, you know, we know how that turned out for Bill. But, yeah, great special. <laughs> and can you talk about how you got involved here in Huntsville on the comedy scene? Because you're not from Huntsville. Uh, not originally. Uh, I was a kid in Florida, uh, moved when I was 12 to Phil Campbell, Alabama. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's the one that got wiped off the map in 2011 and nearly by a tornado. But uh, I've been in Huntsville since 2001 when I started at UAH. But uh, ever since, you know, like my early memories that I described of stand-up comedy, I've been a big fan. I watched all the specials on Comedy Central, you know, Comedy Central Presents, Premium Blend, just, you know. You also consume sitcoms and things like that. Oh, yeah, that. Just, yeah. yeah. Anything that, you know, earns a chuckle, I've always been drawn to. Uh, anytime there was a comedian at UAH, you know, I was there. Any Wednesday night that Ace had set up, you know, for you know, the students, you know, come and watch. How did so you break into the scene? I broke into the scene initially. I got an engineering degree. I had been doing that for a few years, but decided at that time it wasn't very satisfying for me. And I'd been brainstorming other you know ways, you know, I could I could branch out, and, you know, make a living, you know, doing something I'd have I'd have a passion for. So one day I'm like, Huntsville, I don't think it has a uh, a comedy club. Is there even a demand for a comedy club? That was before Stand Up Live. Right, it was well before yeah. Stand Up Live. It was uh, like 2011 or so. You know, and I'd always you know, like been tempted to try comedy because you know people knew me you know, for my sense of humor, and I just never thought of myself as somebody who could get up in front of people and make them laugh. But I was just that you know funny guy who never said a word in group conversations unless it was funny, and you know, all eyes on me and everybody laughs. And you know, and when I was you know wondering if there's even a demand for you know, stand up comedy in Huntsville. Um, I decided to look to see if there was any kind of like independent or local stuff going on, and, and at that time, you know, Epic Comedy Hour, had hosted had, by Scott Eason, right? Scott Eason, mm-hmm. initially you know, founded by Justin Ludlow, and uh, it, it had three or four you know successful shows that had come out, and you know, another you know group of local you know aspiring comics, you know, were trying to put together opportunities, uh, the open mics and stuff like that, chances to get out and practice, and at that time, a new open mic had been starting. Yeah, I messaged Justin Justin Ludlow because I saw his name affiliated with you know Epic Comedy Hour, and he told me about it. And I went and checked it out, and yeah, I'd written some stuff down to try out on stage, but I didn't have the nerve at that point to to sign up and go up. But then 
I'm like, okay, these are a bunch of guys, you know, trying to figure it out too. So the next time I, I went up and yeah. Did you have something prepared or did it come off the cuff? It was, I had something prepared. I had typed out word for word, actually. Um, <laughs> it was at a place called Night Moves, you know, a sports bar in Hazel Green. And I got up there and you know, basically read off of my notes, you know, word for word. But I was nervous. You know, my knees were shaking. My voice was quivery. And they were showing the Daytona 500 on a big projector screen across from the stage. And... While I'm on stage, Juan Pablo Montoya got into a fiery car crash. So I had to compete for attention with that. and oh. felt like the stakes were lower at that point, so the mm-hmm. pressure came off. And wasn't the style you know, that, I, you know, that I do now, but it was my first you know, foray into getting up in front of people and trying to make them laugh. Uh, I got some polite chuckles, and that was enough to get me hooked. You mentioned you had notes, and I know that you have tons of notebooks mm-hmm. full of ideas and set lists that you use at different gigs, and you also use those at open mics. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about open mics and how they help shape your set? A lot of times just doing chores, doing laundry, you're just uh, thinking the weird thoughts that I have. I'll, I'll jot down. I come up with punchlines first. So I'll try to figure out ways to frame those punchlines and end with other jokes. And I'll jot down some other jokes that I think would work well with it. And then I take that up in front of a, a crowd at an open mic and you know, see how it goes from there. And those jokes... You don't retire them. You sort of recycle them, correct? Oh, yeah. yeah. Never never get rid of a joke, ever. Uh, Can you tell me why that is? Because you know, the, the longer you keep doing it, the better you get. And you realize you know, a joke that you tried that was just like a standalone joke that didn't have any other framework around it. Like, you know, there was, there's something there. But for whatever reason, you couldn't make it work the first few times you tried it. But then years later, you've got other material. You look back and like, oh, if I just change this detail here from like grocery store at a coffee shop, I can lump it in with these other jokes and, you know, have a chunk of related jokes. It's, it flows better. Uh, it's easier to remember that way. And every audience is different. How do you gauge audience reaction every show that you do based on how you shape a joke? I try to know what kind of crowd to expect. Like, if I know it's going to be, like, a younger crowd, like, my jokes about, like, black and white TV shows or, and stuff, you know, may, may not go over. Or if it's right. an older crowd, like, you know, maybe some recent pop culture jokes aren't going to go over so well. So I try to know what I'm getting into and frame it that way. Yeah, I've got some other like litmus test type jokes like, okay, this one didn't work. Let's go this direction. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I've got over the years, I've built my sets to be fairly flexible and I, I know, you know, inside and out so I can adjust on the fly. What is a gig that you've had that you had to maybe improvise, you know, speak off the cuff? For the most part, I, I like to stay with what I plan to uh, perform. You know, something glaring happens, a like server if you, you know, if drops. you forget something in your head. <laughs> oh, if I forget something? Yeah, yeah. I've got, like, you know, fail tags in my back pocket. Like, uh, can, you, can you explain what that is? A fail tag? Like, mm-hmm. uh, if a joke just doesn't land the way you expect it to, or even if it's a joke that commonly does land. Uh, like an in-between. Thing. Yeah. Like, okay, I pegged you guys for a Harry Potter crowd. I guess I was wrong. I'll make myself disappear from that set. I don't know. That's, that's not what, what I've said before, but something along those lines. So you are clearly a huge part of the local comedy scene here, and you helped with homegrown comedy, which you mentioned before. Can you talk more about the founding of that endeavor and your role in it since its inception in 2012? Well, yeah, the first show was in July of 2012. I was in the you know, first lineup. I did a five-minute set. Had a lot of fun, got a video of it. Uh, I remember it went pretty well. We had like 270 people in the crowd. And watching the video back, I'm like, oh, I was pretty drunk. Yeah. They might have been laughing at me, but I like to think they're laughing more with me. But that was founded by you know, Tom Hand and Thaddeus Blake, you know, some local comics. They'd been on Epic Comedy Hour a few times. It was founded to keep a focus on having more local comics on shows regularly, monthly, ideally. But you know, due to scheduling, it wasn't always available each month, so we took it what we could get. But eventually, we learned that you know, we're going to expand our reach for talent like out to like other nearby scenes and you know within alabama you know birmingham uh montgomery chattanooga yes anywhere like within a two-hour radius just to be able to have you know like a quality show each month without you bringing on the same talent you know too frequently because we do have a lot of regular crowds and we don't want to you know spread comics and crowds too thin and then uh you know i stepped in you know tom hand moved for a while to to come to washington and Thaddeus, you know, asked me to, to step in as a co-producer, and you know, from that point on, I was I, like, I was involved with you know the booking and hosting rotation and whatnot. I also want to hear about traveling as a comedian with a home base here in Huntsville. How do you translate what 
makes audiences laugh in Huntsville to somewhere like Chicago? For the most part, you know, my jokes in particular are fairly universal. But I do wonder sometimes if I tell the MC to say from Huntsville, Alabama, if they're expecting me to come up with a banjo on my knee or something like that. like mm-hmm. <laughs> The stigma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what? He, he doesn't have an accent or anything. So I think that might throw people off. So I, I've wondered sometimes if I'm doing shows in Chicago or L.A., I'm like, did I ha- make the host dig me into a hole by <laughs> saying I'm from Alabama and these you mm-hmm. know folks expect something? And so you are moving on to Florida, to Tampa, actually. Right, yeah. Got Next my car month. loaded right now, heading straight there from here. So I want to know what you're going to bring from what you learned here in Huntsville to that comedy scene down there. My approach is going to be to go in, make friends, try to be likable, and try to be funny. If someone comes into a new scene just with expectations or entitlement, you know, that can typically not go over well. So I'm going to try to go in and start from the bottom, yeah, expect some hazing, you know, but try to work my way up, yeah, Mm. despite the fact that I've got almost nine years under my belt. So I also want to know what you hope to get out of your time there and where you see yourself going, maybe when your time in Tampa is, is done, like where, if, if you would like to move from Tampa after that. Yeah, I'm trying to figure it out. I plan to spend at least a couple of years in Tampa. Um, I might end up you know, finding a, a regular day job that I enjoy and uh, just moonlight as a comic in the local you know, like comedy clubs or local shows or just within the state of Florida. But uh, if I really, you know, like hit a stride on like, you know, picking up fans and getting sh- shows booked regularly and I start writing a lot more material, I might be tempted to you know, take that even further. Well, go we'll to see big how old it goes. LA. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not ruling it out. Yeah, I do love Southern California. So I have a few questions to end with. Do you have any hidden talents? Uh, I'm pretty flexible, you know, like Gumby. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know. It's. <laughs> Kind of hard to demonstrate here on the radio, I guess. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I can squeeze myself through a tennis racket. <laughs> I don't know. I probably could. I can dislocate my shoulder. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I haven't tried it, but if you, mm-hmm. have, if you find a tennis racket that has been unthreaded, yeah, I bet I can get through it. If somebody came up to you at a comedy show and asked you, hey, I heard you on the radio, uh, could do this. And they happen <laughs> Funny to have little thing. a tennis racket, <laughs> I'd give it a shot, yeah. <laughs> What is your favorite original joke to tell? A recent joke I've come up with. Uh, it's not quite in my you know, regular rotation yet, but uh, it makes me chuckle. And it's you know, worked a few times on stage. I've got a free trial of McAfee on my computer, and it ran a scan. And the only thing it flagged me for was not being a McAfee subscriber. So it basically ran the pickup line equivalent of, Hey, something's wrong with your phone. It doesn't have my number in it. <laughs> I love that one so much. I think I, I botched the wording a little bit, but, you know, that, I think, yeah. It's okay. It's still. So who's your favorite comedian nowadays? Somebody that I really enjoy and I think is next level. Uh, he's so smart and animated that you forget how smart he is. Baron Vaughn is one of my favorites. Uh, he's got two specials out, or two CDs out, and I thoroughly enjoy them. And uh, he's getting a lot more acting work. He's on um, Superstore and, you know, a lot of other, you know, parts on TV shows. Uh, Grace and Frankie. I've done shows with him, and he's very likable, very nice. I have another one. What is your favorite road story that is radio-friendly? Hmm. Working with other comedians or solo? Favorite road story? Um, in 2014, some other local comics and I took a megabus to Chicago, which, you know, like if you've ever, ever written a megabus, you know, that's, there's a story in that. It's uh, very uncomfortable, very crowded, because it's very cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got there in one piece, and we hopped, you know, cabs and Ubers and, you know, the subway train around town. Hit up a lot of uh, Chicago eateries, you know, Chicago's famous for its food. We went to do seven minutes for free at a bar because they show that on local television, and we would get a, you know, a copy of the video. And uh, the show was just okay, but like all the other, you know, like, hangs with uh, other local comics after that and then the crazy stories. We went to a Chicago Bulls game and there was a uh, world star caliber, you know, fight in the stands where six, you know. <laughs> world star hip hop. Yeah, world star hip hop, yeah. <laughs> like six security guards couldn't take down a guy that was high under, you know, PCP or something. He oh was like, goodness. you can't hurt me. Like, wow, this guy's scary. Uh the Bulls won, and uh, we got to use our ticket for a free Big Mac and any participating Chicago Lamb McDonald's. 
Thank you for being here, Brandon. Do you have anything you would like to add? Uh, just hit me up on all social media at Joke Grenades and give me a follow and I'll try to post something funny and entertaining and that's the best place to catch where I'm going to be next. That was a new segment covering Huntsville's local comedy scene called Funny You Should Ask. Hosted by Katie Ganaway on the Arts Underground, Saturdays at 2 on this channel, 89.3 HD1. The next edition of Funny You Should Ask features Raina Cahill coming up April 27th. You can also find information about all our original programming at WLRH.org, look under programs, or use the WLRH mobile app. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3, listener-supported Huntsville Public Radio. Thanks for spending time with us. The historic Princess Theater, with its elegance and comfort, seats 667 people in a normal full-house situation. And generally, a full house, with some healthy sales at the refreshment stand, is what it takes to make even a little bit of money hosting live events. So reduced capacity makes the math difficult to balance. But the Princess is keeping her stage alive, which is also helping downtown Decatur weather our current stormy economic times. Princess Theater Marketing Director Melissa Ford Thornton stopped by to tell us more about how they're saving their stage and staying safe. I think one of the biggest um, issues was how are we going to make this uh, financially feasible when normally if you're paying for an artist to come in and you've got your deposit down, if we can't fill the seats then um, how does that work? But actually, it kind of took care of itself. Some of our bigger artists pushed out further into the year, and we were able to uh, start the movie series. We moved the singer-songwriter series down to the main auditorium, and that was in our listening room, which is, of course, more intimate on purpose, and an 80-seat capacity area. So moving that down, um, we were we were able to keep our lights on and let people know we were around, and, and it was happening. Uh, I think some of the uh, biggest concerns were making sure people would wear masks because that's been kind of a challenge for, I think, everywhere. But, you know, we have the signs, you know, you must wear a mask to enter. It's not thank you or please. It's, you know, we're, we're going to keep our patrons and our artists and our staff as safe as possible. And the, the math, you mentioned that uh, earlier, you, you, know, you generally have to sell out or come close to a sellout to break even or make money. So how is the math working out for the princess? It's um, It was really tough, of course, starting in March. We did our virtual listening series just to stay out there, just, you know, the, the streaming and stay. St- the, the, right, right, right. And also we did pay a stipend to the artists, and then they were able to raise, you know, through a virtual tip jar, and we split the tips between the princess and the artist. So there was kind of a competition also. Whoever raised the most money um, on their own, then they had their own show at the princess when it was able to have a show again. So that was kind of fun. Uh, Remy Neal, uh, Dave Kennedy, and Christina Lynn were the the winners in that. And that first show, um, you know, the the virtual shows, of course, we didn't make money. We lost a lot of money. I'd I'd say we probably lost 80% of our revenue. And that was really hard for everybody. It's frustrating to see that happen and sort of know that that's what to expect. Exactly. And that, you know, we're certainly not the only ones out there. So we've spent this time writing grants. We've spent this time making sure we have all the government guidelines and health health official guidelines and in total check. You know, we have the, the plexiglass up for, you know, our concessions area. Everybody's wearing gloves, the whole bit. But um, I, it was really interesting because just a couple of months ago we started making revenue again so that was exciting to see so i i don't know if it's smaller people um, amounts of people coming to uh shows and they're buying more concessions <laughs> which helps or if uh you know just some of these things we've been doing are more acoustic oriented and then also the movie series so they aren't as big budget on our end so when people come and and they buy the tickets it's it's been a it's been a good deal and for people who aren't familiar with the Princess Theater, uh, give us a little perspective and context. Princess, the Princess Theater is an institution in downtown Decatur, and you have to be vital. Uh, your success has to be vital to the surrounding businesses in the downtown area. Talk a little bit about the connection of, or the importance, rather, of the Princess being active and helping keep the downtown healthy. 
That's a really good point. I mean, the Princess Theater is located right in the heart of downtown on 2nd Avenue. Uh, restaurants, downtown merchants, the whole kind of historic feel of, of Decatur is there. And the Princess has been around since 1919 as, an, as a venue, uh, starting with the silent movies and then the vaudeville and then the talkies and then music and all of that. But, uh, you know, so it is an institution. And when our lights are on, when the marquee's lit and people know something's happening, then the restaurants get business. The merchants get business. They get it before and after the show. And, uh, you know, there's just traffic downtown that normally wouldn't be there. And that's um, something that we're very proud of, that we are a catalyst for the economy and and the tourism part of of North Alabama, really. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, when things aren't, uh, happening the way, we, you know, we used to have Third Fridays where, you know, people put their historic cars downtown and it was just jamming and we would open the lobby up and people come in and they could buy their drinks and popcorn and it was an entertainment district so drinks could be carried in certain cups outside. Very fun time. You know, this, in fact, this time of year would be when that was happening when the weather gets better and, you know, that just, that's not feasible right now. Well, the businesses have to be happy that you have um, concerts coming up, the Songwriter Series still still in play. Let's talk about that. What is coming up in the near future for The Princess? You have some great shows coming up and comedians, magicians, all sorts of things? Yes. We're, we, um, that's one thing I love about working there. Um, you know, one day you may have children's theater and they're doing Snow White, which we will have next weekend, the first weekend in March. And the way that's worked out, we did have a holiday show. They, um, The same Dreamweavers children's troupe came in, and their costumes are fantastic. These kids are phenomenal. <laughs> I'm like, you're going to be on Broadway one day. But uh, when they did their Christmas uh, performance, it, it was split between, you know, two shows or three shows a day, one on Friday, two on Saturday, two or three on Sunday, and um, keeping the numbers down. The, the cast is down in numbers as well as the audience numbers. And, in fact, that's one thing I want to say is that we um, – were given the go-ahead to open to 50% capacity up from 30. We kept ours at 30% just because our first priority is safety for everyone and, and their health. Um, so we have this this children's Snow White coming up next weekend. Uh, we have a ton of movies. Uh, Tombstone, you want to see Tombstone, a Western. Um, Carolina Story, a duo, is coming up uh, the singer-songwriter series in March. And uh, we have Drake White. We have uh, Paul McDonald to be in the April singer-songwriter series. Um, and our magician, David Gerard, I think is mm-hmm. how you pronounce it. And he is a world-class magician. And he's going to do big illusions. But then there's audience participation, too. It's a family-friendly show. And that's going to be April 16th. And we're very excited. We have a dry bar comedy, Southern Comedian, coming up, uh, Leanne Morgan. So I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she'll talk about when your kids are streetwise and your daughters are always mean or, you know, what happened to normal genes. She's very Southern, very funny, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's May 7th. Some nights I get intoxicated to forget about What's wrong? If you feel like Great to hear the Princess Theater is keeping it moving for the businesses and residents of downtown Decatur. Truly a gem of the Tennessee Valley and doing a great job keeping the stage alive. Find event info about the Princess Theater at princesstheater.org. You can also find links in a podcast of this edition of the Public Radio Hour on our program page at wlrh.org and on the WLRH mobile app. Look under programs for your favorite program. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3, member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Brett Tannehill. This is our weekly spotlight on special programs and homemade radio features. Next, we'll get an update on efforts to connect North Alabama with the massive Singing River Trail Greenway. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kyle Rizdahl, the host of Marketplace. We spent a whole lot of time this past year covering how the coronavirus has changed the way we work. Marketplace's Mariel Segarra talked to folks about the complications that working from home can bring. 
Richard Fine began our conversation with a warning about the hammering sound I was about to hear. His downstairs neighbor has recently undertaken some construction. That's just, you know, the, the joys of working from home. Fine, who talked to me from the bedroom of his Manhattan apartment because his wife and son were working and learning remotely in the other rooms. We have committed to the to the full company that we will not mandate people to come back until Labor Day of 2021. At Marketplace, we're keeping up with our changing economy and what the future might look like. And when you support your local public radio station, you're helping us do just that. Here's somebody who can tell you how to give and thanks. You can support us today at WLRH.org by clicking on the blue donate button. Thanks so much. This Monday on the Sundial Writers Corner, Huntsville writer Monita Sony reminds us why women are so revered. Whatever you give a woman, she will make it greater. If you give her a house, she will make it a home. William Golding. March is Women's History Month, so let's all take time to honor those women that we love. You can tune in to hear Sundial this coming Monday morning at 9 here on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. Hello, my friends. I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered about that wildest and wooliest of instruments, the didgeridoo? Well, this weekend on The Invisible City, my buddy Bradley Edwards is going to swing by, hang out with us, and educate us a little bit about that mysterious instrument. That's The Invisible City, Friday nights at 7 and Saturday nights at 10 on 89.3 WLRH here in Huntsville and 104.5 in Fort Payne. Coming up in this week's Valley Sounds. We're going to check out a tune from Subjected to Infinity, Thundercrotch, Helen Keller's Ukulele, Radiotron, Cuball, The Golden Flakes, 53 Judges, Raymond Williams, and the featured artist for this week's Valley Sounds is Boxer Joy. Hope you can tune in to Valley Sounds. You can hear Valley Sounds Saturday nights at 9 on 89.3 WLRH. This is the Public Radio Hour on listener-supported 89.3 WLRH, Alabama's original public radio station. I'm Brett Tannehill. Thanks for tuning in. So we are truly blessed to be surrounded literally on all sides by amazing music, comedy, and performance art. Great things are happening from the Shoals to Fort Payne. And wouldn't it be great if there was some way to connect everything together? Well, you may have heard there is a plan in the works. And support for it grows every day. Portions of Singing River Trail are already open in what one day will be a giant greenway, connecting communities and shared cultural resources from Sheffield to Bridgeport, with many large and small places in between. Singing River Trail Executive Director John Kavach has had hundreds and hundreds of meetings since he last paid us a visit, so it's time for an update. We're building a green ribbon that will bind North Alabama together. That's the way I look at it, at least. So let's talk about that for a second. Uh, listeners, we're looking at a work-in-progress map of Singing River Trail. You can find it at WLRH.org and on our social media. And, uh, John, I'm looking at the map across North Alabama, seeing a lot of orange dots uh, by Bridgeport <laughs> and Scottsboro and Madison and Athens and Huntsville and Cortland and Sheffield. And then there is a green line connecting everything. So tell me a little bit about how, how you picked these orange dots and uh, what is the squiggly green line that's connected them? How did you come up with that? So in some cases, we picked the squigglies and the dots, and in some cases, they picked us. Um, I'll tell you, very progressive, forward-thinking um, Scottsboro, the mayor of Scottsboro, Jim McCammy, uh, reached out to us. Um, we, he was not on – Scottsboro was not on the master, uh, the master route originally. Uh, he calls and says, how do we get on this thing? And we started talking, and uh, before you know it, uh, we have a pretty good relation struck up. Um, Gunnersville, pretty much the same thing. And so in reality, what we want to do is the original trail was 70 miles in three counties. So Limestone, Morgan, and Madison counties. Once we realized that the interest was much larger than that original route, um, I just decided let's double this thing and let's do it right. Let's do it from you know Bridgeport, which is only about 20 miles from Chattanooga, and Florence, which is only about 17 miles from the Natchez Trace. And when you begin to look at these squiggly lines and these dots, you realize that we have an opportunity to, to really utilize the Tennessee River 
river like it's never been used before for for recreation, for health and wellness, for education, uh, for tourism, for economic development. So we follow this uh, we follow this river line straight down um, from Bridgeport, Scottsboro to, to Gunnersville. But we're also looking at a possible route that would cut through the Paint Rock Valley. We have an opportunity with some partners to maybe really open up the Paint Rock Valley and come down and take the 72 corridor to Huntsville. And from there, um, the original route is what we had in play, you know, what we had before, and that was uh, Huntsville, Madison, um, Decatur, and Athens. And then we decided let's build out this uh, Decatur to the Quad Cities, um, to the Shoals, and this follows the historic Overland Trail of Tears route. And so it goes along the river. And then it cuts through Cortland uh, into uh, Muscle Shoals, Tuscumbia, Sheffield, and Florence. And so really the goal is to have the, the recreation part of the river, but also the historical cultural all tied together in, in one trail. And I was going to ask you about that. The, the stories and the people and the places along the trail are important. Yeah. Uh, the Greenway sort of connects everything together. And um, like you said, part of it connects to other existing resources uh, like the, the Trail of Tears portion yep. that goes through Lawrence County. Yep. Talk about uh, connecting to some of these other lesser-known tourist areas and what that could mean. I'll give you a great example. I'm glad you asked that. In fact, this morning I got a phone call from uh, uh, State Representative Proncy Robertson out of Lawrence County, and people are very concerned that the Jesse Owens Museum might close because it's closed with COVID. Uh, it's a very small museum, but it's a very meaningful museum. And so I get a phone call from the director of uh, her name is Nancy Pinion, and I um, or Pinson, and I got a phone call from her this morning saying, "I don't know if you can help or not, um, but." W- you know, we're in dire need of support. Well, what I love, A, is that these folks are already beginning to think about the Singing River Trail as an asset that they can approach to help, um, right. and, and we'll do that. But, you know, I think it's important also to recognize that for a lot of a lot of nonprofits and a lot of cultural spots, COVID has been very hard on them. And, you know, for us to say, hey, we're not going to be there tomorrow, but we're on our way, gives us validation um, in the sense that, you know, we have representatives and mayors and state senators calling us, hey, how can you help with this? And I I think that's part of what we want to be. And I think if I can tell you one thing um, in my own kind of as I've grown into this role, the thing that I want to make sure people know is I don't want to be a charity. I don't want the Singing River Trail to be a charity. I want it to be a competitive nonprofit in a competitive marketplace of ideas and projects. And what I feel like is, is you know, we're COVID proof. Um, you know, it's going to be open 24, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, people can use it to commute, to, to recreate, um, you know, tourists use it. And so I think for me, the part that I'm beginning to really embrace is we can compete with any project. And, 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 and we're beginning to see this return where people are now using us as an asset to, to help further their local cause. And so if I can make, or if Singing River Trail can help make Cortland even better than it is, or Paint Rock, uh, the town of Paint Rock even better, then that's what I, I want to help do. And I think that connectivity is important because when you're 49th in just about every category, I think what we're going to find is if we work together, we're going to get a lot more done than working apart. And I've been following your updates on email. Here's yeah. what we had, did this week, that sort of thing. And uh, I'm always struck at how many meetings there are. <laughs> meetings, meetings, meetings. I was on the uh, the Facebook event you had, I guess, last week yeah. to sort of uh, kind, of, kind of give a summary. Um, and this is something that is really, I guess, critical at this stage is you really putting the time in, boots on the ground, meeting people, explaining this sort of weird idea to people. <laughs> and people are really responding well to it. You said you've had... Uh, almost 600 meetings or something like that over the past six months or so. Six months, we're almost at 600 meetings. That is crazy. And I think for me, and you know, I have yet to ask a single individual for a dollar. And and a lot of it has been, let's build this the right way. And the right way is let's build it through our publicly, you know, our public officials, our public offices, our elected officials. Let's get the buy-in. So we're not, you know, there's no surprises at the end of this. So we have that. We have almost 30 legislators that are now supportive of this, all North Alabama legislators. Um, And so to your point, you know, for me, one of the reasons I want to be able to really kind of get to a point where we, this is no longer an if project, this is now a when project. You know, we're about to begin to apply for some, some significant federal grants that are, that are coming out. 
And I think for me, you know, if you're listening to my voice right now is, you know, do we need funding and do we need support? Absolutely. That's, you know, we're a nonprofit. Um, but I also want people to recognize that that this is something they're investing back into themselves when they invest into the Singing River Trail. And if you don't believe me, go down to South Huntsville and there's two and a half miles of Singing River Trail now open at Hayes Farm, just south of Grissom High School, the new Grissom High School. Go walk that, go ride that, go rollerblade that, come back, give me a call and tell me what you think. Because I promise what you're going to think is, holy cow, when do we get the rest of this? And that's the part that's most exciting for me is that the investment into us is really an investment back into the people. Um, it's not like, you know, changing your brakes and you, no one ever gets to see, you know, the work that you just put in, the money put in. This is like getting a new paint job on your car and everyone gets to go, wow, that looks great. So that's the part that excites me is so th this is actually a thing in in places yes oh absolutely and and if anyone wants to meet me down in south uh, huntsville um i'd be more than Add to your mating total i <laughs> yeah, i'd meet with anyone that wants to talk i'll walk you can take a walk in my shoes uh literally um but it's it's really so it connects almost to uh the new grissom high school all the way down to bell mountain park and it's 14 feet wide, and it's as smooth as a tabletop. And and it's just something I encourage anyone who can who can get down there to go look at it because we're about to connect that to another couple of miles that will take you straight down to Ditto Landing. So now you're talking about from Ditto Landing all the way up to Weatherly, you'll be able to take a beautiful greenway, not get on a road, not you know risk getting hit by a car, and you're on the Singing River Trail, but you're also on a local. Greenway in Huntsville, and that's the part that I think is also important, is that we're maintaining the local. We're not trying to strip the local of anything. We're trying to amplify the, the opportunities that, that local communities can do by building these greenways. So part of Singing River Trail, still in the idea stage, part of it you can actually go and walk and ride and, and yep. hike. Um, so it's still pretty early in the process. Are you able to get any sort of sense of the uh, economic impact something like this would have because it seems like the more people you have come on the more people you have pushing behind it the higher that could go exactly and in fact i'm i'm probably getting close to a meeting in knoxville with tva um which is a big and which is a big part of what we want to do is engage our community um so i'm using a group called alta consulting and they're a national national leader for greenway construction and they've done some economic development work, and they estimate that there's probably going to be about $26 million a year of direct economic impact when the trail is done. So you have to think, well, how is a trail going to generate money? Well, when we build a trail that's 150 miles long, what you're really building is a magnet for people around the country to come take a vacation. And so suddenly we're putting heads in beds. We're putting people in, in restaurant booths. We're putting people at gas stations. Um, you know, those people are, are coming from other places. Um, and we're also allowing our people to enjoy this. But also, you know, hey, if I'm riding my bike over to Decatur and, uh, you know, I want to do something. And so it might be an early dinner or a lunch on a Saturday and then ride back home to Huntsville. Well, you've really what you've done is you've put money back into the economy. And so if you think about twenty six million dollars is potentially what we will return each year. That's just the economic development part of that. That's just the economic, uh, cr the creation of, of, of revenue. That's not even counting the $1.4 million of, of the money we would save by taking the cars off of the highways from people that are using this now as alternative transportation to their jobs. So imagine at Gate 9, because um, we're going to go right by, imagine Gate 9. Uh, as you are in Huntsville. Your, for, yeah, in Huntsville, right. Gate 9 at the Arsenal, sorry. Um, imagine at Gate 9 that you're sitting in a long line of cars and someone goes whizzing by on their bike and, and goes right into the, to the arsenal. How many times do you have to watch that? Do you start saying, I might want to do that? Um, and same thing with the amphitheater. Um, the, the, the folks at the amphitheater in Huntsville have been early on big supporters of ours to the point where they're actually drawing us into their plans because they see the connectivity of if there's a concert, how great would it be to be able to walk or ride your bike to the concert, get back into, you know, get into your, you know, whatever concert you're at and then get out and not have to wait. Um, you know, if you had a few beers or, or had some fun, you know, it's a safe way of getting home. And now you're talking about quality of life. And, and a lot of people in Huntsville and North Alabama right now are really talking a lot about workforce development. 
And I think that's great because we obviously need it. But I don't think as many people are talking about something that I think we can provide, and that is workforce retention. So you get someone from D.C., Maryland, Virginia, somewhere down here. uh, They get down here, and, okay, so we got them here. How do we keep them here? And I think what you're going to see is quality of life is going to become more impo- more important to the the matrix of of keeping and and maintaining those workers, and and that's a big part of what we're trying to do. And finally, what's next? <laughs> what's next for Senior River Trail as as opposed to? Another 600 meetings. What, what's the sort of next tangible thing so, that people can connect to? Okay, and, and, and this is exciting for us. Um, there are two federal grants that we're applying for um, that there's, there's some, some low-hanging fruit for areas that have had uh, coal, that were once coal areas that are no longer coal areas. Uh, and there's some federal grants out there that we're able to apply for, one in Jackson County and one in Colbert County. And it's to really to assess how can you change a, a culture and an economy. So we're doing that. That. We're also applying for, uh, we're in the beginning stages of applying for a very large federal grant uh, that would really, uh, could be up to $20 million. And so right now, I think if, you, if I could tell you what mode we're in, we're in grant mode. And uh, there's nothing more tedious and nothing more exciting <laughs> than writing grant after grant uh, after grant. Yeah as you might know. Um, But at the same time, um, some of these federal grants, some of these state grants, and some of these private foundations, um, you know, if we, if right now, if someone handed me uh, a million dollar check, um, I could have five projects started next week, and I could have two areas construction within a month. And that's the part that excites me, is my strategic goal was to get as many projects ready to go, be it design, engineering, or construction. So if someone wanted to give us money, um, or if we got a grant that we didn't expect, or the, you know, whatever, is that we're not sitting there wondering what can we do with it. We, we have five projects right now that we could plug right in and say, go. And that's the part that excites me, is we're being thoughtful. Um, we're also, um, I think, just we're ready. We're ready to go, and, and we're doing it. John Kovach, Executive Director with Singing River Trail. Thanks so much for giving us this update and joining us here on the Public Radio Hour. Thank you, Brett. That was Singing River Trail Executive Director John Kovach with an update on efforts to organize a giant greenway that connects communities, tourist attractions, and cultural resources all the way across North Alabama. Find more information at singingrivertrail.com. You're listening to our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. This is the Public Radio Hour. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. One of the big passions of everyone here at WLRH is animal rescue. So we were excited to hear Friends of Rescue is expanding its service mission with a new Thriftique store on Winchester Road. Christy Stimson, a volunteer at Friends of Rescue, stopped by to tell us more. I've watched this property go from an overgrown wooden lot to what Friends of Rescue has done with it so far to open this Thriftique. So tell, tell me a little bit about the process, what you can, of, first of all, how did or why did Friends of Rescue decide it needed to move or it needed a new Thriftique? So we really needed to expand. We needed more space than we had at our current location. So the Thriftique that we have now allows us to house a boutique-style store where we offer thrift store prices, But it also allows us to have space to host adoption events for foster meetings and for animal care, as well as food and supply storage. How did you find this property? I mean, it's it's a huge process to go through, you know, to to find and purchase and to then to upgrade something like this. Uh, How did you find this property and... And how's it gone so far? Is it going pretty well? It's going really well. So our board found the property and did some research to make sure it would be a good investment for our group. And since purchasing, they've done a lot of rehabilitation on the property to bring it up to what we'll need for it to do. How does the math work on a Thriftique? You said that that it helps fund your mission. How big of an impact does something like this have on Friends of Rescue? So most of the financial support we get comes from donors, but the Thriftique helps to supplement those funds. So our rescue is completely 100% volunteer. There are no paid members in our organization, And we also only house animals in foster homes. We don't have a physical facility where dogs are kept in kennels or cats are kept in cages. So all of the money that we get from donors and from the Thriftique 
goes toward animal care and vetting and making sure the fosters don't have a financial burden for the pets that they keep on our behalf. We handle all of the financial care for those animals. And Christy, you said you're a volunteer for Friends of Rescue. What is it about this particular service mission that that you enjoy? Why is it that you would spend your time and energy doing this? So I just love all animals, but I rescued a dog. All animals? All animals with fur. I'm not a big fan of animals with scales. Even skunks have a place. It's okay. okay. Fair enough. Um, But I rescued a dog when I was very young and saw the impact that it had on his life and how much he changed because of the love and care that he got versus where he was before. And after that, I've just always gotten animals from shelters or from rescues. But what I like about Friends of Rescue is that it's all volunteer and you don't have an animal in another facility. So they pull animals from the shelters where they may have a risk of euthanization and they take them to someone's home and the animal gets to decompress. They get to learn manners. So when you come as an adopter, you're not wondering what this dog is going to do in your home. The foster home already knows it does like cats or it doesn't like cats or it does like to sleep in bed with you or yes, it'll stay on its own bed all night. You're not wondering what exactly is going to go on when you bring it home. You already have a good idea of what it's going to be like. Huntsville seems really lucky to have so many uh, uh, groups that are interested in animal welfare. Um, How big of a challenge, I don't want to call it a problem, but how big of a challenge is it here in Huntsville and Tennessee Valley with people with unwanted pets or stray animals? Is it it something that local groups are able to sort of mitigate or, or are we facing something bigger here? I think a lot of the groups are able to work together to really mitigate some of the problems. But in the more rural areas, it's a bigger issue because the stray populations are larger. So there's nothing to do with them. Right. If they get turned into a shelter, you know, a shelter may only have a few dogs today, but they may have double that number tomorrow. And space is always an issue. So that's why we really try to pull from the local shelters so they don't have a tough decision to make if they don't have enough room for animals one day to the next. And if people are interested in learning more about Friends of Rescue or getting involved, what can they do? Absolutely. So we have a website, forrescue.net. They can follow us on Facebook at For Rescue. We have an Instagram, it's at Friends of Rescue, or you can follow our Twitter account, and that is Friends of Rescue as well. That was Christy Stimson, a volunteer at Friends of Rescue. Their new Thriftique store is located at 705 Winchester Road in Huntsville. This is the Public Radio Hour, and we have time for one more gold nugget of sound. And with spring arriving this Saturday, I always think of a funny poem I learned from master storyteller and Alabama legend, Catherine Tucker Wyndham. So, from the Sundial Writer's Corner Archive, here's Dandelion Dandelion with Catherine Tucker Wyndham on the Public Radio Hour. All my life, since I learned to read and write, I have written, and most of what I have written has been prose, because I never could do poetry, as they say, or write poetry. I, I admire poets. They they have a difficult task of writing poetry. But I wrote from the time I was in the first grade I knew that's what I wanted to do, was to be a writer. I really wanted to be not just a plain writer, but a newspaper reporter. I wanted to write. So I wrote, and the only poem that I ever remember writing, I wrote when I was in the sixth grade. The the class elected me the class poet. I guess they didn't realize that poetry was not what I really did best, but... Anyhow, I was elected the class poet, and I wrote a poem about the end of school. And it started out, School is out, school is out. Over the campus there comes that shout. The pupils are gathering their books one and all to put them away till they need them next fall. And I'm afraid it went on for many other verses like that, but fortunately I have forgotten all the rest of them. And I never had another brush with trying to write poetry until I was in college. And our college composition teacher one spring gave us an assignment to write a poem about spring. 
Well, I really struggled with it. Uh, it. Poetry, as I said, didn't come easily for my writing it. I loved to hear it and read it, but I just couldn't write it very well. And I waited for days on writing a poem about spring. Well, I had one of the smartest girls at Huntington roomed with me, Virginia McNeil. Now Mrs. Hughes lives up in Decatur, Alabama. Well, Virginia, was she was just a brilliant student, and she was also one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen and still a beautiful woman. But she things came very easily for Virginia. She didn't have to work hard on getting good grades. She was smart. Well, as I say, I had struggled with my poem, and the night before the poems were due, Virginia came in and she said, oh, is that English uh, assignment due tomorrow? And I said, yeah, we've got to have our poems in tomorrow. And she said, well, I better write something. And this is what she wrote, and I don't know whether she got by with it or not, but I have never forgotten Virginia's poem. And her poem <laughs> for spring was, Dandelion, dandelion, squatting on the ground. If I had to be a dog, I'd rather be a hound. And that was it. And I don't know why I remember that either after all these years. But I never see a dandelion without thinking about Virginia's poem. Big thanks to the family of Catherine Tucker Wyndham for allowing us to continue to air her wonderful commentaries. Also, big thanks to Huntsville comedian Brandon Imes, Singing River Trail Executive Director John Kavach, Christy Stimson with Friends of Rescue, and producer Katie Ganaway for helping with this week's show. You can find links to more information about the things you heard tonight at WLRH.org, where you can also find a podcast of this show. You can also look on the WLRH mobile app. Thanks for supporting your local public radio station. This is the Public Radio Hour, produced in the studios of 89.3 WLRH. Stay well and good night.